All right, turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Do we have those outlines? Somebody pass the outlines out. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. <clears throat> I'm going to take my suit coat off because it's warm in here tonight. The air's been running all day, but for some reason it's not keeping up. It's, it's hot. It's been really hot this whole week, and so I'm sure that has something to do with it. But. All right, non-denominationalism and the ecumenical movement. And I mentioned this morning that we were going to talk about something that is a big problem in a lot of uh, new churches getting started and in a lot of uh, churches that are 10, 15, 20 years old because this idea has been around for quite some time, but it's really picked up steam. And almost any church that you see get started, I mean, um, you know, we get things in the mail from time to time. I'm sure you do as well. Um, but when you get something in the mail like that and a new church is getting ready to start, almost never do you see a denominational aspect associated with it. It's always like River Church or, you know, the Covenant or, you know, Transformation Society or who knows what. You know, I mean, they just make up a name and they call it a church and they claim that they're non-denominational. Uh, what we're going to talk about tonight is why there is basically no such thing as non-denominationalism and what it actually is, and that is basically the ecumenical movement. It's got a subtitle. This is the defense of the independent fundamental Baptist. It doesn't really have a. It doesn't really have much to do with what independent fundamental Baptists stand for or believe. It wasn't all that long ago that we did a whole series on that, and so I'm not going to get into that tonight. But this will show you, hopefully why we're independent fundamental Baptists. And let me get into this. I don't, this is not the intention tonight, but let me just mention this. You know, you see this on the internet a lot. IFBers, you know, you're in your IFBers, you're independent fundamental Baptists, you know, and all you IFB people, we're independent Baptists because we're not associated with anybody else. Now there's other independent Baptist churches and we call ourselves independent fundamental Baptist churches. Um, but we are not a denomination. We're separate. That's what independent by its very nature means. So yes, you might have been in an independent fundamental Baptist church where you had some bad experiences and you lump everybody together, uh, but that's at the very least, that's unfair because every independent Baptist church is not the same. That's why we are an independent Baptist church. Now, you might be able to group us into a denomination of Baptists, and I'll, and I'll take that. But um, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 17 by way of introduction. The Bible says, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Now, by way of introduction tonight, I want to kind of give you some... Uh, a definition of terms, all right? I want to talk about what a denomination is, and I want to talk about what, uh, talk about what ecumenical means. Um, because a lot of people, you might have heard the term, but you're not familiar with what, what ecumenism is or what the ecumenical movement is all about. So a denomination is a class or a society, and you don't have this, these um, necessarily on your uh, outline sheets there. You can maybe write it down at the bottom underneath the conclusions if you want to. By the way, the way this thing is designed, everything is uh, first two pages are on the front, second two pages are on the back. I've just folded mine in half like this, and then when you open it up, you can do the, the other two pages. So uh, that's how it goes. It's, I know it's not numbered, but that way you're not confused when we start moving through this. But 
A denomination is a class, a society, or a collection of individuals that are called by the same name. So a denomination of Christians. The term denomination is used in two different ways, and you have a denominational structure under which churches are grouped together by common belief and practice, as well as being governed by a central headquarters or committee. And I know that sounds stuffy, but essentially what we're talking about is like the Roman Catholic Church. You have a pope. Who is, and I don't even know their exact structure, but you have a pope who is over archbishops, who is over bishops, who is over the priests. And each one of these, you know, there's a big, um, you know, a Catholic diocese in this city. And then there's a bunch of other little Catholic churches that basically answer to that Catholic church and so on. It's a denominational structure. The same thing is true with Eastern Orthodox, the Anglican Church, the Lutheran Church. Even for that matter, the Southern Baptist Church is a lot of that way as well. But that's a denominational structure. But then you also have what could be called denominational identity. And that is um, churches share a common belief and practice, but they retain their own individual autonomy. That's one of the things that we talked about, about uh, that, that makes a Baptist a Baptist, is we believe in the autonomy of a church, Right? We are our own entity. We answer to no one as far as what we do within our own church other than God. And the Bible is our final authority and not some man that has to tell us how we're going to run the church or any of those kind of things. Um, but a, a lot of Baptist churches do fit that description because we have a common core of beliefs and practices that we hold in common with every other Baptist church. So the Baptist is a denomination, and we do fit within that denomination because technically all the Baptists should fit under the same core of beliefs. Now, we're getting so spread out with those things, it's hard to even say that anymore. And there was, there was a time there when we were getting ready to start our church, honestly, where I, where I considered not even putting Baptist on our name because, um, and, and it didn't last very long because I realized that, that what the Baptist, uh, our Baptist heritage is so rich and what we fought for uh, and what so many gave their lives for means something. But the problem is you put Baptist on the church and it doesn't mean the same thing that it used to mean. You know, uh, it used to mean that you stood for certain things. You can go into a Baptist church and you can find women preachers. You can go into a Baptist church and you can find homosexual leaders in the church. You can go into a Baptist church and find just about anything else that you find in any other place. So Baptist used to mean something that it doesn't necessarily mean anymore, but... Baptist does mean something, and that's why we suck it on the name of our church, and that's why we probably call ourselves Baptist. Um, but they're, they're denominated Baptist in belief and practice, but they're not members of a denominational structure. By the way, did you know in America, and we have, we have many more than this, but there are Southern Baptists, Independent Baptists, Pentecostal Baptists, Seventh-day Baptists, Hardshell Baptists, Missionary Baptists, Conservative Baptists, Free Will Baptists, Progressive Baptists, General Baptist, Primitive Baptist, Reformed Baptist, United Baptist, Landmark Baptist, American Baptist, and there's even a group called Two Seed in the Spirit Baptist. And I mean, and the list goes on. There is something close to 400 denominations of Baptists. 400. And we're all supposed to be, you know, we're all supposed to have the same belief, you know? And yet there's 400 different denominations of Baptists, and you know how that goes. Within each of those denominations, there are people who don't even agree with the people who are in their own denomination of Baptists. So, um, and a lot of these, actually, because we are so uh, diverse in, in this area, uh, we have a lot of these different Baptists around us. Now, most of them are very small, um, but we have Primitive Baptists, we have Free Will Baptists, we have um, um, Reformed Baptists, we have Landmark Baptists, we have the American Baptists, of course, we've got plenty of Southern Baptists. We've got a lot of those around us. 
But we all kind of fit under that same denominational structure because technically and supposedly we identify with common beliefs and practice. Now, when it comes down to it, I'm not going to associate with very many Southern Baptists because they're not like us anymore. Um, Reformed Baptists are very Calvinistic. We're not going to, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to embrace their doctrines. Um, there's, there's lots of different Baptists that we wouldn't even associate with today. Um, and so maybe you would consider them to be a completely different denomination. I don't know. But now let's move in then to what the ecumenical movement is and what it means. Ecumenical means worldwide or universal. So when we talk about the ecumenical movement, we're talking about a worldwide or a universal movement. And what the ecumenical movement is in their prevailing philosophy um, uh, is that they desire that all professing Christians join together in unity regardless of doctrinal integrity. In other words, we are all Christians, so let's all join together. Um, the ultimate goal of the ecumenical movement is to bring all the religious groups together into one worldwide entity in sympathy, if not an organization. Now, they would love for all the Christians to be part of this one big worldwide organization. But at the very least, if we can just get all Christians to come together in thought, and I don't mean, oh, let's all think together about, uh, you know, about being Christians. But I'm saying, like, if they can get us all moving in the same direction, even if we don't uh, agree to be in their denominational structure. There are three aspects of the non-denominationalism and the ecumenical movement that, that we're going to look at tonight and actually refute. And that's the modernistic aspect, um, which is basically the World Council of Churches, the evangelistic aspect, which is interdenominationalism, and then the charismatic aspect, which is Pentecostals. So let's start then tonight with uh, the problems with the ecumenical movement. And the first one is the modernistic aspect. I'm going to move through these fairly quickly. Um, so try to keep up. If you miss something, raise your hand. I can give it to you or you can ch uh, check with me afterwards and, and we'll get it. I don't want to be here all night, uh, but I do want to get this, this, this idea across because it's a very important idea that's, that, that separates us from many other uh, organizations. And it's something that's very, very dangerous um, in our Christian circles today. So um, the modernistic aspect, they're represented by the World Council of Churches. And you see that WCC, that's what that stands for. Um, the World Council of Churches is the representative at the global level. And then underneath them, the national councils um, obviously are on the national level. And then the clergy associations are on the local level. Most of these things are things that you're probably not going to know too much about because we don't we don't have that. We don't, we don't adhere to those things. And so maybe you would hear something about it here and there. Uh, but it's a very, very big thing, especially in the churches that consider themselves to be non-denominational. Now, the World Council of Churches represents more than 300 denominations. Um, and they're representing more than 400 million professing Christians. Now, that's a lot of people professing to be Christians. I'd be surprised if there's even that many on this earth today, period, let alone those who uh, profess it. But um, let me give you some problems with the World Council of Churches. And, uh, and again, these are probably things that the World Council of Churches is probably not even something that you've really even known about before. But it's a huge, huge organization, especially when you think that they have 300 denominations that take part in this actively and 400 million people that claim to be members of this World Council of Churches. Here's some problems with it. Their goal is very plainly that they want to move move forward toward the manifestation of one holy church. In other words, if they can get, like you hear this idea of the one world government, they want a one world church, essentially. It's exactly what they're trying to accomplish. 
Nothing that distinguishes anybody from anybody else within this organization because we're all just Christians together. That's what they want. Now, they brought women ministers to the forefront in a lot of instances. Um, you, you have, and, and so this World Council of Churches, because it's a world council, it's held all over the world, um, but they have, um, they have these worldwide conferences and, and hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands and thousands and thousands of people come to these things. And many times they'll have a woman preacher get up and, and uh, be the keynote speaker at one of these uh, services, if you can, can call it that. But they also, they embrace some very weird and blasphemous doctrines. Um, I, I don't have any of those listed here for you, but they refer to a female God. Uh, they claim that, that Mary was not a virgin. I mean, th these things, I, I mean, this is absolutely, absolutely 100% in opposition to what we believe. They claim that Mary and Martha were lesbian forebears. They're kind of, kind of the forebears of the LGBT movement. Um, they refer to God by some very blasphemous names. You can go back and look some of these things up. You'll find all of them there. One, one publication they produced said that chanting was actually better than prayer. Um, the, uh, at one global meeting, they, they had um, men dressed in loincloths to get up there and beat on these drums at the beginning of the service as part of the ceremony that they were doing. I mean, just some very, very blasphemous, weird things that they do. Here's another thing that is wrong with them. They honor, in a very literal sense, not just that they are okay with having them, but they honor um, get the gay, lesbian, the transsexual community. They have no problem employing those people in their pulpits. Um, we're not even going to get into it, but that's the thing. How can you, how can you take somebody seriously that, that used to be a man and stands up as a woman? Or used to be a woman and stands up as a man and is going to try to preach the word of God. Um, but they're 100% they're okay with that. In fact, they, they have these people that, that are, you know, preaching in their, um, their worldwide um, meetings. Uh, they also take in, uh, partake in very heathen practices as, at a lot of their meetings in an attempt to include all the religions and all of the ideas, of course. If you're bringing everybody together, you can offend no one. And so essentially, they end up offending everyone by trying to offend nobody, you know? Uh, they claim that not all the scriptures are life-giving, speaking particularly of women being told to remain silent in the church. They've talked about that very specifically. You can't say that a woman has to be silent in church. That's not life-giving. So the, all the scriptures are not life-giving. They claim that all faiths, and that would be Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, Catholicism, they're all one with God. They're all one with God. You've probably heard this idea already, but basically, we're all going to heaven. We just take different routes to get there. I mean, and, and this thing, I mean, it, obviously they claim to be a religious organization. They claim to be the World Council of Churches. But the things that they do have absolutely nothing to do with the Bible, essentially. Um, it's all about trying to include, it, it really is all about trying to have a one world religion. Bringing every person of every faith together under one roof and saying, see, we're all just like each other. That's what they're trying to accomplish. They claim that everyone is already saved. Um, and obviously, that is, that is about as anti-Bible as you can possibly get. The only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ. So, that is the, uh, the modernistic aspect. Then the evangel evangelical, evangelical aspect. And I had some things underneath there, but for the sake of space so that the outline didn't get too long, I cut these things out. But let me just give you what this is, uh, what this is all about. 
uh, they're represented by interdenominational parachurch organizations. And I know that's some, some big terms, but interdenominational means the Catholics and the Lutherans and the Baptists and everybody else works together. That's what interdenominational means. And parachurch means that it's not a ministry of any church. It's just this organization out there. Um, and so they have, it's, it's represented by interdenominational parachurch, parachurch organizations, fellowships, mission organizations, um, Campus Crusade for Christ, that's one of them. Youth with a Mission, World Evangelical Fellowship. In other words, it's a non-denominational attempt to bring every group together. And I'm not saying that everything that all of those groups do is, is horrible or wicked or wrong. Um, but in an attempt to bring all of these denominations together, essentially they end up standing for absolutely nothing. And I don't even know how much they're actually even accomplishing for the cause of Christ. Because if you're bringing a Lutheran and a Catholic and all these other people together and Campus Crusade for Christ, who's witnessing? Who's giving the gospel? So they do good things humanitarian, aid-wise and stuff like that. But what's the point if you're not giving somebody the actual gospel of Jesus Christ? So uh, the problem is that every church is denominational in the sense that it follows certain beliefs and practices that distinguish it from other churches. Even churches that claim to be non-denominational and that refuse to have any sort of denominational name attached to their church have beliefs and practices that distinguish them from other churches. All of these churches that are getting started today that claim to be non-denominational churches are not non-denominational. Number one, most of them, if you go into the bylaws of their church, actually will say that we are part of the Presbyterian churches of America or we are part of the Methodist churches of America or we are part of the Southern Baptist Churches of America. Most of them will have that in there, at the same time claiming that they're non-denominational. You cannot be non-denominational because you have something that distinguishes you from other churches, and that puts you in a denomination. There's, there really is no such thing as non-denominational. Some are charismatic, some are not. Some believe in a certain eternal security, some do not. Some are governed one way, some are governed another way. Some baptized by immersion, some baptized by sprinkling, some don't baptize at all. Some baptize for salvation, some don't baptize for salvation. I mean, something is going to separate you. Doctrine separates you from somebody else, so you are denominational. Um, there, there are all denominational type characteristics. And so all of those things are, are things that are going to distinguish it and put it within a denomination where it's able to identify with something else. The only way to avoid that distinction would be to accept any and every belief and practice, and that's impossible. You cannot accept every belief and practice. You can't be baptism by immersion and baptism by sprinkling. You can't be, we baptize only adults or we baptize, you know, we baptize babies. You can't have it both ways. You have to pick one or the other, which every church does, whether they're willing to admit it or not. So it's, it's an impossibility to have no distinctions. Some of the ecumenical churches have almost achieved that where they don't believe absolutely anything. Um, but it's, it's impossible to be non-denominational. You cannot be. So claim it, but you can't be non-denominational. You are going to associate with the denomination in some way. Now, the third thing then is the charismatic aspect, and that's the Pentecostals. For the most part, they focus on experience above doctrine, and they seek to unite every sort of denomination. Um, well, have you experienced the Holy Ghost? Have you experienced speaking in tongues? All of these other things. So an example of this was the North American Congress on the Holy Spirit and World Evangelism in New Orleans in 1987. More than 40 different denominations got together at this conference and were represented in what they called the Congress here. Um, of the 40,000 in attendance, half were Roman Catholics, 
A Catholic mass was held every morning. None of the more than 200 charismatic speaker, speakers lifted a voice against doctrinal heresy. Most of, uh, many of the most popular Christian leaders were there. Um, and that would be your guys like Rick Warren. You know, the, the Saddleback Church and the Purpose Driven Life. You know, Rick Warren has actually gone so far as to even say that, that um, uh, Muslims and Christians are essentially the same thing. We believe in, in essentially the same God. We just call him by a different name. That's, that's the kind of people that we're talking about that are representing the World Council of Churches and other things. Non-denominational, but they're not. Um, and, and so a lot of these popular Christian leaders were there, but of 40,000 people, half of them were Catholics, and they did a mass every morning. And then these, these Pentecostal preachers are going to get up, and none of them said anything about, you know, against Catholicism. You can't. If you're trying to bring everybody together, you cannot preach doctrine. You can't preach what the Bible says about those different doctrines. Let me give you some problems with the charismatic movement. Number one, it has a close relationship with the Roman Catholic Church, which obviously is a big red flag. A lot of denominations have grown out of this movement, and that would include the Assemblies of God, that would include the Church of God. They came out of the Pentecostal movement. Um, but it has a very close relationship with the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church, if somebody who claims to be a Catholic and claims to believe what the Catholic Church teaches, they are not saved. And they are not doctrinally following the Word of God. And if you claim to be a part of an organization that has close ties with the Catholic Church, then how can you be preaching the truth? And many of them are not. Here's another problem. They ignore the doctrinal principles that separate the different denominations. There are gross errors in what they believe doctrinally so that they have no desire to stand up for what they believe. Because most of them don't even have beliefs that they stand up for because they don't even know what they believe because it's so ambiguous so they don't offend anybody that there is no specific doctrine that's even being preached at these places. Here's another problem. They ignore the command for biblical separation, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But that is one of the biggest problems with interdenominationalism and the ecumenical movement. There is absolutely no separation. Uh, and a third, uh, fourth thing is they believe in the continuation of the apostolic signs, meaning they believe in healings, they believe in speaking in tongues. And if you go to any, all you have to do is type this into YouTube and you can see these huge conferences where they, well, Benny Hinn and some of these other guys that are doing healings and, and speaking in tongues. And it, it's, it's very demonic, honestly. Um, and those that are not demonic is actually made up, you know, they, they, they get the actors, they hire them ahead of time and oh, you, you know, I've been crippled since I was, you know, 15 years old and they come up there and oh, you're healed and it's somebody who's acting, you know, they were never crippled in the first place. Um, or they never, I mean, if somebody comes up there and says they have cancer, how do you know if they have cancer or not? Oh, you're healed. Oh man, I, the cancer's gone now. Look, I can stand up straight. They could all along, you know. And there's been a lot of people who have come out of that healing and speaking in tongues movement and stuff like that and have said, this is what they do. I was one of the actors, you know? Um, and so it's not actually even healings that are taking place, but all oh, the people that are there sure think that that's what's happening and that's, they're, they're into it and, you know, all this interdenominational. That's the Pentecostal aspect. Now, let me give you some problems with the ecumenical movement. You got a lot of Bible here. And I'm not going to, for the sake of time, read all of these passages. They're there, so you can go back and read through them. Um, but number one, the ecumenical movement downplays doctrinal purity and refuses to practice biblical separation. The Bible teaching of separation uh, forbids God's people from fellowshipping with error. Meaning, if a Catholic priest came to me and said, Hey, 
we'd love to do this, you know, citywide campaign. And we want to, we're trying to get as many churches together as we possibly can to do this. We'd like to have a meeting where we, uh, you know, we try to bring the community together. Would you be willing to do this with us? No, because that's fellowshipping with error. That's fellowshipping with doctrine that goes against the word of God. And it does two things. Number one, it goes against the Bible because I'm not separating from them. And number two, it tells everybody else that I agree with what the Catholic Church believes and what they're doing. And I don't. And I don't want somebody to get that impression. Uh, we have, a, we have a, a group that's like that. I, I forget actually what it's even called in Henrico County. Um, and it's actually put together by the police. It's called like the Faith Coalition or something like that. And they always want me to be a part of it because I'm a chaplain and I do a lot. And hey, you know, if you could come to this thing, it would really, it would really boost a lot of other people coming, I think. And I'm like, all right, you know, blah, blah, blah. I, I, I don't want, you know, I don't want to be rude to them and be, you know, tell them, no, you're indoctrinal error. They won't even understand what I'm talking about, you know. But I'm not going to do those things because I'm not going to fellowship with other churches who have no doctrinal purity whatsoever. And I know that sounds harsh, but the Bible commands us to separate from those things. The Bible commands us to separate doctrinally. If there's no distinction between me and a Catholic priest, then how is somebody supposed to know what's doctrinal according to the Word of God and what's not? If we're fellowshipping with all of those people. Romans 16, 17, and 18. Um, now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned. 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. I know we use that often for talking about marriage, but that fits perfectly well with any other situation that we put ourselves into, right? Any other uh, meeting that's going on where doctrinal people come together to try to talk and preach and do whatever else to other people. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. For I am je I'm jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband that I may, may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. You know what happens many times with these people? Okay, yeah, I mean, if, if it can get my name out there, then yeah, I'll do this, you know? And the next thing you know, oh, these Catholic, I mean, they're not so bad. You know, I mean, they're, they're people just like we are. And yeah, you know, they got a little bit of problems doctrinally here and there, but, but honestly, they're really good people. And I really do think that they're trying to get the gospel out. They're trying to get people to heaven. That's what happens. That's why he says, separate from them. If you don't ever do anything with them in the first place, then you're never going to get to that point where you're saying, oh, they're not so bad. But it will happen. It will happen. And that's what he's saying. I I'm afraid that through the subtlety, through the subtlety of these little things, that's what's going to happen. Galatians 1, 8, and 9. I've got 21 other references here, and I didn't write them down in yours. If you want more of them, i got 21 more references here that I can give you where the Bible tells us that we are to be separate. We are to be distinguished doctrinally. And that's one of the big problems with the ecumenical movement. Ecumenical, remember, means worldwide, you know, one unified religion. The problem with that is there is no um, doctrinal purity, and they refuse to practice biblical separation. Here's the second thing. The ecumenical movement denies the fact that true Christianity is God-made, not man-made. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 6. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Right? Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. That's God-made. It's not man-made. 
John chapter 17, verse 21. That they may all be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee. That they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. That's often used as a proof text for their objective. Look, we're all one. But they fail to point out that Jesus was not instructing Christians to, to create some sort of ecumenical unity. He was praying for God the Father to create a spiritual unity. He was trying to get them to unify under Jesus Christ, not under whatever we have to do to bring everybody together. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But the unity that Christ prayed for is based on one truth, the Word of God. And it's evidence if you look back at the context of John chapter 17. We don't have time to go through that tonight. But the ecumenical movement downplays the importance of truth and doctrine. Uh, another thing that the ecumenical movement does is it downplays the local church. And it, and it exalts inter-church and interdenominational relationships. The local church is the entity that Christ established for, for the fulfillment of his program throughout the ages. It's the local church. It's not the interdenominational church. It's not the, um, you know, the, the inter-church and all of these things. Christian unity is primarily a local church matter. And I, and I wish we had time to read through some of these verses, but 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 10. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. 1 Corinthians 12, Philippians 1. He was talking to individual local churches. That's who he was talking to. And so, oh, well, look, he says that we should all be one. No, he was not talking to all churches. He was talking to the local church at Philippi. He was talking to the local church at Corinth. You should be unified. You should be as one. As a church, not as a bunch of churches. That's what he was talking about. And so they've taken that completely out of context to make it sound like you're saying, oh, all the churches should be one. No, your church should be one. We should be unified together for the cause of Christ. Here's a fourth problem with the ecumenical movement. The ecumenical groups are often trying to substitute social and political endeavors for Christ's command of world evangelism and church planning. Ecumenical groups are trying to substitute social and political endeavors for Christ's command of world evangelism and church planning. The Great Commission is given five times in the Bible, and that instructs churches to preach the gospel and disciple believers. The apostles did that exclusively. You look at everything that they did, and there were social problems in the areas that they went to, but there's no record that they went out setting out to try to, to take care of the social problems that were in those areas. They preached Christ, and they knew that Christ was going to be the answer to those social problems. But what's happening with the ecumenical movement is they're trying to fix the social problems instead of just preaching Christ. We're going to go out and dig wells. We're going to go out and, you know, feed the hungry. We're going to go out and provide medical supplies. And I'm not saying that those things are bad things, but that's not the purpose of the church. And that's what they've made their focus is these social issues and everything else. So they gave themselves completely, these, the apostles, to spreading the gospel. And there's no other organization that can do what the church is tasked to do. The Red Cross can't do it. Samaritan's Purse can't do it. None of these other things can do it. The church's job is to spread the message of the gospel. Uh, here's a fifth problem with the ecumenical movement. Ecumenical groups are promoting unbiblical ideas about women's liberation. They teach that women can be uh, leaders and pastors in churches. Um, Ecumenical uh, circles are often clamoring for equal rights as much as the world is. The Bible says that men and women were created for different positions and roles. You can read through 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9 through 15. The man has a role. 
The woman has a, the woman has a role. And when we try to step outside of those roles, we are stepping outside the bounds of what God created us to be and to do. And there's other verses that go along with those as well. 1 Timothy 5, 14, 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35, Titus 2, 3 through 5. And the list goes on. Here's another problem. The ecumenical groups do not have high uh, moral or doctrinal standards. It's common to find drinking, smoking, cursing, immodest dress, dancing, homosexuality, various other forms of immorality among ecumenical, ecumenical Christians. They cannot. They cannot separate. Otherwise, you are hurting somebody that's in your ecumenical organization. Uh, the cry is liberty and self-esteem, and those who call for strict Bible standards of morality are labeled as legalists. God's not changed. His word is still holy, and he still requires strict obedience to his word. Now, let me give you some controversial passages or views, and then we'll be done. Here's what some of these, especially those who are part of the World Council of Churches or in this ecumenical movement. By the way, that's one of the big problems with Billy Graham. Billy Graham was a great preacher and won many, many, many souls to Jesus Christ. But after Billy Graham got to kind of um, celebrity status, he started to interdenominate, if that's a word, with all of these other organizations. And Billy Graham would get up on the stage with Catholics and Presbyterians and Methodists and whoever else wanted to get up on the stage with him. And that was one of the big problems with Billy Graham. He did great work, but Billy Graham went against the Bible and ended up hurting the cause of Christ in the latter years of his ministry because he was so worried about trying to please everybody. And look what happened with Billy Graham. Billy Graham got to the point where he started questioning whether or not hell was even a real, literal place. He started questioning other doctrines that he used to stand up and preach for and stand up and preach against throughout the, you know, the majority of his younger years of his ministry. But when you start mixing with those denominations, you have to start. I mean, I'm sure Billy Graham was friends with all kinds of Catholic people, you know. And once you become friends with them, then what happens? Well, I can't offend these guys, you know. That's what happens. Now, let me give you some controversial passages or views. Number one, Jesus called for unity among believers. Well, Jesus called for unity among believers. Then we should all come together. Everyone who claims to be a Christian should come together, right? Well, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 that they may all be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, and that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. That's their, that's their, uh, one of their doctrinal stand-up, one of their pedestals that they use to say, look, Jesus was trying to bring all Christians together. Let me answer that. Number one, John chapter 17 and verse 3 shows us that Jesus was referring to those who are saved. It's not a unity of true, it's not a unity of true Christians with false Christians, which is what a majority of those in the World Council of Churches are. It's those who are saved. John chapter 17, verse 6 and verse 17. And again, we don't have time to go through all of these. You can read these. They're there. But it shows that Jesus is referring to those who keep his word. A unity in truth, essentially, is what he's talking about. It's not a unity that ignores doctrinal differences for the sake of an enlarged fellowship. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach that doctrine is to be sacrificed for the sake of unity. Yes, we should be unified. 
in Christ, but not at the expense of doctrinal purity. John chapter 17, verse 14 and 16 shows that Jesus was referring to those who are not of this world. The ecumenical movement is in no way separated from the world. It's a unity of those who are separated from the world, those who are trying to stand up for doctrinal purity, those who are trying to stand up for what's right. John chapter 17 and verse 1 shows a unity of the spirit, not man-made unity. John chapter 17 is a prayer that's directed to God the Father, not a command directed to men. And so it's not something man needs to do. It's something that God has already done. He has already unified us in the spirit through Jesus Christ. Because we're saved, and when we get saved, we become part of the body of Christ. We are already unified in Jesus Christ. It's a spiritual reality that was created by God among genuine believers who are committed to the Scripture, not a possibility that has to be organized by man, which is exactly what the World Council of Churches has done. Here's the second uh, passage or, or, or idea that they use to stand on. They say, well, Jesus was neither a Pharisee, a Sadducee, or a Zealot, or any other religion of the day. He maintained a non-sectarian relationship with God. If he was simply an Israelite, then he would simply be a Christian today. Jesus didn't claim to be a Pharisee or any of these other... He didn't claim to be any particular religion or any particular denomination. So if Jesus was here today, he wouldn't claim to be a Baptist or a Presbyterian or anything else. He would just say he was a Christian, which is what we're trying to do, bringing everybody together as Christians. Jesus came to change the religious and political climate of his day. That's what Jesus was here for. And I'm moving through these. I, I hope you're kind of following along with this outline. That's number one. He was completely doing away with their system of worship. So, of course, he would never have joined with them. Why would Jesus say that he was a Pharisee or a zealot or a Sadducee or any of these other things? He was trying to do away with those things. Why would he join one of them? And what would he have joined? There was nothing in his day. There was only Christianity. There was no denomination. There was no Presbyterian. There was no Catholic. There was none of those things. So what would Jesus have joined in the first place? Uh, Jesus came to preach and establish the new doctrine associated with the age of grace. That's number two. Number three, the apostles clearly spoke against and reprimanded those who went against the doctrine they preached under the command of the Holy Spirit. Look, we even saw the example of Apollos, right? Apollos was preaching the baptism of John. He was preaching that a Messiah was coming. And Aquila and Priscilla said, hey, hang on, your doctrine's just a little bit off. Jesus Christ already came, and he is the Messiah. That's the Messiah you need to be preaching. And Apollos said, oh, man, I didn't realize that. No, you're right. You're exactly right. And then he mightily convinced people to turn to Jesus Christ, right? Well, that's doctrinal purity. They weren't saying, well, Apollos, I mean, he's a good guy. He was preaching the doctrine, you know, the, the baptism of John, so I guess, you know, it's okay. No, they said, look, we need to stand up to, we, we need doctrinal purity. And that's what they were rallying around. That's the unity that they were talking about. So number four, by the time Jesus and the apostles died, there, not, there, there had not been much time for religious division to take place through the establishment of false doctrines. There was less division because there was less religious apostasy, apostasy in the form of uh, different religions. Look, by the time Jesus Christ died, he was establishing a brand new religion. Now, obviously, it had been prophesied and everything else. You, I hope you understand what I'm saying. But he was establishing something that was not in existence until he came. The age of grace was moving in. They were not under the law anymore. They were under grace. And so by the time Jesus Christ died, there was not time for other religious denominations to rise up and start preaching false doctrine. But it wasn't long after that that it started to happen. 
right? Look what Paul did all the way throughout the rest of the New Testament. Hey, there's a false doctrine. You need to ignore it. You need to push it away. Hey, there's a false doctrine. Better get rid of it before it takes hold in there, right? They didn't necessarily call themselves a specific denomination, but Paul was very adamant about making sure that they did not get mixed up in false doctrines. And so, no, we don't call it denominationalism in that day, but that's exactly what it was. Paul says, this is the unity that we need to be around. This is the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Put all those other things away. He wasn't saying, well, all right, if you claim to be a Christian, I know it's a little different, but all right, come on. We need unity in Christ, right? No, he wasn't saying that at all. And so you can't use the argument that, well, Jesus would have just claimed to be a Christian today. There was, Jesus was doing away with all of that stuff. And by the time Jesus died, there was not religious false uh, you know, doctrines that had been being promoted and everything else. But not long after that, they were already doing it. So, uh, and number five, Jesus never espoused compromise for the sake of unity. You see that happening often uh, when Jesus stood up to those who were trying to uh, make him look bad or who, was, who stood up to try to, um, you know, to, to downplay what he was there for. Jesus never, never would espouse. And you, you don't see that throughout the whole rest of the New Testament. Nowhere does it say, well, for the sake of unity. No, it says, if somebody's, if somebody's preaching a false doctrine, you get them out. You push them out, and you keep them out until they get right. Then you can let them back in. Uh, Jesus even preached the, the idea of, of church discipline, right? Why, is you, why are you preaching church discipline if, if everybody should just come together in unity, right? Because it needs to be gotten out. It needs to be pushed out. If it's impure, doctrinally, spiritually, whatever you want to call it, get it out. Get it right and then bring them back in there. So here's, here's um, uh, uh, um, some conclusions. Now, there are, you know, there's, there's other views and arguments of favor and unity among all the churches, but honestly, they're, they're inconsequential. They make... They make very little sense. They have no merit to their arguments, and so they're not even worth you know, bringing up because they're so easy to debunk. But there's, there's other things that they try to say, but those are the two main ones. Well, Jesus would have been just a Christian, so that's what we should be. Let me give you some conclusions very quickly, and we're done. It's clear that to be truly non-denominational, a church must accept any and every doctrine espoused by every church, which is an impossibility. It's not possible. You cannot be truly non-denominational. Well, there's, and that's what everybody wants to go. We are a non-denominational church because we accept everybody the way that they are. So do we. You can come in here being a Catholic, a Methodist, a Satanist. You can be whatever you want to and come to our church. We're not going to espouse it. We're not going to accept it. But you can come in and you can listen to the, 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 the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that's, that's exactly why these churches try to say that they're non-denominational. They're trying to sound the least threatening as possible. Well, we don't really stand for a whole lot of that stuff that those Baptists stand for. And so, come on, we're non-denominational. We're just, we're just Christians. We're just all trying to live in unity with Jesus Christ. Come on, be a part of us. But they're not non-denominational. They stand for something. Hope Church, right up here on Route 6. Huge place, right? Non-denominational. Go into their bylaws. You know what they are? They're a Presbyterian church. Why don't they call it Hope Presbyterian Church? Because they don't want people to know that. We're non-denominational. We want everybody to love everybody. No, you are not non-denominational. You're Presbyterian. You're just afraid to stand up for what you believe and say that you're a Presbyterian church. Right? Vertical church that was right here before us. You know what they were? Southern Baptists. Go in their bylaws. It says it right in there. They're not non-denominational. They're Baptists. You know? 
all these other places, almost every single one of these non-denominational churches is part of some other denomination. They're just afraid to stand up and say, this is what I believe, because they don't want people to be offended. They want people to everybody come together and, you know, we want to accept everybody and love everybody the way they are. So do we. But I'm not ashamed to say that I'm a Baptist because I believe the Baptist doctrine is the closest to the Word of God. So it's, it's clear that to truly be non-denominational, that you have to accept anything and everything that is, espoused, that is espoused by every church. And that's not possible. The second thing, then, is it's clear that to be non-denominational, there can be no standards of doctrine, uh, no, no standards of doctrine or of separation. And that's in direct opposition to the command that's given to us in our text verse that we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 17 and verse 18. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. I don't hate Catholic priests. I hate what they're preaching and teaching, but I don't hate them. I'm getting along fine with plenty of them, right? I don't hate Presbyterian pastors. I don't hate, I get along with plenty of them. I know them. And I'm not, you know, oh, you're, you know, you're this and that. I'll talk to them just fine. But I'm going to tell you this, I'm not going to get up on stage with them and preach together with them because the Bible tells us very clearly to come out from among them and be ye separate. Don't touch the unclean thing. Somebody that's preaching a false doctrine is the unclean thing. They're preaching the unclean thing. And for us to try to come together with them in this ecumenical movement because, ah, we're all Christians. No, most of them are claiming to be Christians and are not. But number two, we are commanded to be to live separate. We have to, like I talked about this morning, we have to show that there is something different that's being offered. We're not non-denominational. We're Baptists, very proudly Baptist. We stand for something. We believe in something. We're not non-denominational because we're not just all going to come together and espouse any and every doctrine that just comes down the pipe for the sake of unity. Jesus Christ never would have done that. He never preached that. Paul and Peter and John and and James and all of these others preached doctrinal purity. And that's what we have to continue to preach as well. Non-denominational? Not possible. Not possible. You believe something. You believe something. And if you don't, you're not even worth the, the uh, building that you're, that you're in. Uh, we have to stand for something. We have to stand against um, this ecumenical movement, this one world church. Because they stand for nothing. They stand for nothing. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for the time we can spend together. Thank you for the truths from the Word of God. And God, I pray that you'd help us to stand up for righteousness, to stand up for truth, to stand up for the uh, principles that we find and the doctrines that we find in the Word of God. I pray that you'd help us to be strong and to stand against those that are trying to bring everybody together. We certainly want unity, but we want it around Jesus Christ. We want it around the doctrines of the Bible, not unity at the sake of compromise. So I pray that you'd help us to be willing to stand up and preach and teach the Word of God the way that you want us to do it. Thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, stand at your seats with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. We're not going to have a long invitation, and you might not even need to come forward tonight. But perhaps you can stand there and ask the Holy Spirit, ask God to help you to stand up for what's right, to be somebody who will stand up for doctrinal purity, and that we won't compromise. Pray for your pastor. 
I certainly don't have any desire to compromise, but they don't know what kind of situations are coming up, you know what kind of things we're going to be faced with. And I certainly don't have any intention to compromise, but it's only going to happen when God's people pray that we don't. Pray that we can keep things pure. So as the piano plays tonight, the invitation is open.